Art Show. Welcome to the Zard Show. We're gonna talk about music, music and do a whole lot of and conversate about politics. No, we're not. Sponsored by COVID-19. Sponsored by face masks. Sponsored by it's just the food, bro. Sponsored by social distancing. Sponsored by Hi everybody, welcome to the Dart Show. I got my second guest, the the drummer from OK Go, a little band you might know of them. They have over uh, 500 million streams on YouTube and other platforms combined. He's a really cool guest. So welcome my guest, Dan Kanapka. Am I saying that right? Nice to meet you guys. Thanks for having me, Charles. Oh no, no worries, man. This is going out to 40 people at least. So this is going to be going to be one of your biggest interviews, you know. So <laughs> no, no pressure. So I just want to talk about like, let's go back to the beginning for Mr. Mm-hmm. Dan. All right. So what got you interested in music? Hmm. You mean really the beginning? Yeah. Like why did you choose yeah. drums? Cause you could have took, you could have picked any instrument. Yeah. 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 No, I totally could have. In fact, um, I did actually play a different instrument before I started the drums. I played uh, the double bass for my elementary school orchestra. And uh, the reason I got into that was because my oldest brother, he's about seven years older than me, he, uh, he played violin and viola in the orchestra. And so um, growing up as a little kid, sort of listening to what he was doing and hearing all that stuff and just wanting to emulate him and to be involved in what he was doing, I figured I'd, I'd start with, you know, the big double bass thing for the orchestra. I thought that was the coolest instrument there. And I did that for about uh, maybe six or seven months and realized that orchestral music wasn't really what I wanted to do. You know, I really wanted to be um, doing more pop music. And so, um, and then on top of it, the, the double bass was so huge. It was a real pain for my mom to move it back and forth from school and to practice and stuff. And she was like, we need to, we need to get rid of this. Something smaller. <laughs> and uh, um, so, you know, I loved, I loved the music that I was hearing on the radio and, and this was like right around, I think MTV had started at this time and uh drums just were just like that was it that was everything i was like i wanted to play the music that i was listening to and it was definitely not you know uh a beethoven so like it was really it was really about the mtv generation and like the music that was coming out uh of mtv and that was on the radio and and um uh, my dad my dad got me a snare drum and, and uh, made me take lessons from this little shop um, uh, uptown in the, the town that I lived in. And uh, he said that after I did a few months of, of, of lessons, that he considered getting me a drum set. And so at around the age 10 on Christmas, uh, I, got, I got a drum set for Christmas. And, and that, at that point I was done. It was like, everything was drums. Um, 
all the way to about 13. And then I took a little hiatus from drums to see if I could be a BMX rider. And that failed. And at around 16, drums became a big thing again. And from 16 until now, it's been basically my job. You know, it's been my main, my main source of income. I've had a lot of other side jobs, you know, like worked at grocery stores and, and gas stations and movie theaters and things like that. And had to have like other, other forms of uh, income. But um, for the most part, my main focus was just playing drums and playing in bands. Um, and then around two, well, around 1998, the band OK Go started. And we kind of knew right, right then that, that there was a real possibility that there could be a future in that. And that's, uh, I was bartending at the time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Let's take yeah. that back because I, I, I'm a vivid researcher. So your Wikipedia page doesn't say, okay, go. It says Stanley's Joyful Noise. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that one, that was a real band. That was a that was actually a band that was better than OK Go. Uh, it rep- three of the original members of OK Go were in that band, were that band. And they were fierce. It was like, imagine... Stanley's Joyful Noise was like a combination of Metallica, Prince, and the Pixies. And we were, we were so young and had so much energy. And those, those shows and those recordings were just crazy good. Uh, but we never, we never really got outside of Chicago. We were kind of stuck in the same couple clubs. And uh, when, uh, when Stanley's Joyful Noise ended... Uh, Damien Kulash, the lead singer of OK Go, had finished school and come to Chicago, and we started OK Go then. Right. So the you knew the bassist, right, Tim? Yes. But you knew yeah. him. He's like this crazy guy. He, he's been playing drum. He's he's pretty bad BMXer, but whatever. He's a pretty good drummer. We should start a band. And then he met uh, Damien in like high school or something or some summer camp or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim, Tim. The original guitar player from um, uh, from OK Go was a guy named Andy. Um, Andy and Tim were the guys I met in college, and we started Staley's Show for Noise. Tim and Damien had known each other from when they were like 13, and they had gone to like arts camp and stuff like that, and, and they became really good friends. So Andy, Tim, and Damien had a relationship. I came in there. Damien finished school, he moved to Chicago, and that's when OK Go started. Right. So, but when you're doing this, was there a point in this Stanley's band? First off, what's the name? What? What's Who's Stanley? None, none of you guys are named Stanley. Is it no, 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 no. I, you know, it's so, it's been so long ago that I don't rem- really remember where the Stanley's part came from. I think Andy just thought it was a funny name. Yeah, it is. And, and what's what's funny about that is that's my dad's name. So I was like, it's not that funny to me, but joyful noise. Um, I know that was a, was taken from, um, I think Andy or Tim had gone to some sort of church sermon in uh, Chicago. And uh, you know, the, the minister, the pastor was like, make a joyful noise. And so that's, I don't know. It, it it's a simple name, but it it, it worked at the time, and and uh, it kind of worked with the sound. 
So, right. So was there a point though, like you said, whenever, whenever you're in a band or making music, is like there a point where you're like, all right, I don't think this Metallica's Pixie band is is working out. I think we need to shift our sound. Like what made you, what made that band kind of dissolve? Is it kind of just a natural progression? You're just like, ah, oh, I'm just tired of playing these sort of riffs. Well, no, I mean, I think, I think the reason that band, well, that band has a, a story beyond my involvement. I think, I mean, not to get all tragic or anything, but when I had to leave that band because I lived in the suburbs and uh, of Chicago, and Andy and Tim were or were uh, downtown Chicago, and my mom had gotten cancer, and so like I I had to sort of downshift a lot of like activities to make sure that I was available to her. And then I also had, I had work, you know, like I was working at restaurants and things like that. So it was just for me to get down in the city. Um, it was difficult and it wasn't because the music and wasn't because the relationship It was just like a logistics thing that I couldn't be a part of it. Stanley's went on after I left and went on for a few months more with a different drummer. Um, and I, I think things just kind of fizzled with with him in the picture i i i know that we're still really tight with joe he's a he's a really good friend i just don't know the energy for the band um kept going and i think it just stopped but i had to i had to stop that because some some family stuff got crazy and uh um and i remember it was like i think i i hadn't talked to tim in a while and i'd like called him i'm like what's new and he's like uh damien's moving back moving to chicago we're thinking about starting another band i'm like oh like stanley's joyful noise part two and he's like yeah essentially but it'll be totally new stuff because damien will have his own music and we'll kind of start from there sort of the that's the basic story right so then you're all about like 21 22 sort of like yeah that, right and you're just like okay let's start this whole thing so and how did the okay go come how do you pick a name for that uh, the, the name for OK Go is, um, comes from a story that Tim and Damien had when they were at this, uh, this art, arts camp. It's kind of a funny sort of corny story about how the, one of their art class teacher's assistants would uh, lean over their shoulder, you know, totally stoned, uh, and, you know, ask them to do some sort of like still life drawing and be really sort of dramatic about how he was going to get everybody going. And uh, Tim, uh, Damien tells the story really well because he was obviously there, but like this stoner guy's like, look at, look at the draw, you know, look at the still life, look at the paper, look at the still life. Okay. Okay. Okay, go. (laughs) That's how the name came up. It's, Right. It just, you know, I th- honestly, when I, when I first joined the band and they were like, they wanted to call it OK Go, I, I, was, I was like, well, it's OK, it's a fine name. Like, I don't give a shit about that stuff. I was just like, whatever name's good, let's just make music. And um, really, I just thought, I thought one of the nicest things about the name OK Go is just the way it sort of looked. You know, you've got the, you know, it's just the, there's a symmetry about it and, and uh, it's easy to remember and, uh you know, it, it, it evoked movement, and that's good. That was it. Yeah, I just, I just didn't know, like, if you had, like, a 
input into it or there was other names floating around you're like oh it's okay go or we're thinking of like salmon salmon god jesus i don't know <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's no, it's funny i don't i usually don't mess with that sort of stuff like for the first 15 years of the band like basically i i was just like i would say yes to anything and when it came to the to the concepts of of you know what the, the videos were going to be like i was just kind of like i i didn't really it was just like whatever you guys think is cool as long as we're doing stuff i'm excited like mm-hmm. i would play the drums i play my parts those guys have th- things to say about the parts i had nothing to say about the the vocals very little to say about uh any melodic content i uh, was just like i just wanted to make the sh- make sure the drums felt great and that they sounded good uh, it wasn't until the last ten years that I that I started really getting more involved with songwriting and producing for that band. But when they got in your wheelhouse of a rhythm section, you're like, no, 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 this is how it has to go. No, no, it, 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 I was never, I, I wasn't stingy about my parts. I would whatever they threw at me. Like if something was in an odd time or something was tricky or, you know, everybody was pretty, pretty good at programming drums and they would send me the demo and it would be like, Dan, this is, this is what, how we'd like the drums to be. And I'd be like, okay, well, look, you know, I only have two arms and two legs. Some of this stuff isn't going to ever happen. So I would try to funnel their ideas into something that was going to be really practical for a human to play. And then, you know, after some time, I'd be able to uh, add more of my own sort of um, creativity in there. Uh, But it was really, you know, like it was a band sort of decision what the drums were going to do. But at the end of the day, you know, I had to play them. So I had to make the parts work for myself and then for the band. Right. So, so now you're like, you get, you guys are a new band, you're 18, 20, or whatever, you're 21, 22, you're in Chicago, you're all jamming again together. This is one of the things that I would like to try to explore the most is like, how does a band, I mean, things have changed, obviously, a lot has changed, but um, how, how did you guys start getting traction, you know, in the very beginning? Like, how, tell us about that first, like, you know, formative, you know, how yeah. do you team out there? What are you, what are you doing? Well, you know, for, for us, um, in Chicago, we had a we had a couple of like pretty good moves that we we pulled off to just sort of get ourselves known regionally, and especially just in a city as large as Chicago, getting to make a splash there was kind of a difficult thing to do. Um, there was so many bands and and there was it was pretty saturated. The the four or five nightclubs were were you know tons of bands were coming through and we really had to figure out a way to, to sort of cut through all that noise. One of the things that we did that proved to be very effective, although illegal, um, uh, was we, we made our own uh, screen printed posters. So like Damien uh, at school, he had a, a good part of his college um, education was graphic design. And so he made a lot of the posters that um, that we would we would go out in the middle of the night and wheat paste across town. Uh, we're talking like between 
three to 500 posters per show. Wow. And we play maybe once a week or twice, twice a month. And we would go around the city and we paste these, these posters up everywhere. And it was like, you could tell like, like, holy cow, like, okay, go has got a show. And, um, you know, if we were playing at the Metro, we'd put up 500 posters all where, you know, like near the, the, the subway tracks and the elevated train tracks, like anywhere we knew hipsters were going to be, there was posters there. And we're talking lots, like a professionally done postering thing that we would do for the show. Set up where you guys like, um, uh, just this team, this ragtag team yeah. of, of like ski mask. You got, you guys have three hundred posters. All right, let's go. Yeah, like three in the morning, you know, buckets filled with wheat glue, and we would we would leave at like you know two in the morning and try to like two cars would go out, two guys per car, and we would just cover the city in these posters. And um, so, like one time. We got uh, we got a message from the owner of the Metro, who's Joe Shannon, really really great guy, super supportive, really got us to sort of get where we needed to be in town. He told us that that he had gotten uh, like a three thousand dollars citation from the city yeah. because the only the only name on the posters aside from the band was was his club, and so uh, we were like, oh no! And he's like, I paid the citation. You guys are good to play your show, but you know like limit this and i think we did it maybe three or four times again but at that point everybody in town knew who we were okay yeah gorilla gorilla marketing yeah yeah big time what the heck is this that's crazy i did not know that so you're doing this gorilla crazy marketing campaign never the law nothing no one ever got caught no one ever got any no i mean we 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 got we got sort of a wrist slap with the citation but i think at the end of the day you know it was like within six months we went from playing, you know, like 150 cap rooms to playing 2,000 cap rooms, and so wow. the 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 city they sort of they sort of liked us, you know, like they, the the fans in Chicago um, they dug in, and I think we had we had like you know really good press for those shows and. Uh, I mean, we we would put on a pretty distinct, distinctly different kind of show than what was commonly happening in Chicago. There was a lot of post rock and like sort of rock jazz that was happening in town, and then there was Disturbed, who were doing like that sort of new metal kind of thing, and we were like right in the middle and and just different enough um, that we were sort of cutting through. And then we, you know, we we're making these posters. People were just curious about us, right? And then, uh, yeah. and then, and then, lastly, like we're also sort of whores in terms of like trying to play shows. If there was, if there was a great band coming through town, we would, we would try to open up for them, and get on the big bill, do the big poster, and you know, the show would be, you know, would go off great. So, so being proactive, being on top of it, real marketing, doing all these things, and it's a synergistic cycle that totally. allowed you to gain momentum totally it really was it, you really got what you you got back what you put in and it seemed like a lot of the bands that were playing they would you know they would play the show and they would just sort of, sort of hope that people would be psyched about it but we realized that 
a ton more work really has to go in to it to really to really cut through right. and we worked we worked our butts off to to really get on the map with and were you with, guys generating revenue at this time do you have t-shirts cds or anything like that or were you just kind of thinking like let's just play these shows man they're pretty cool no we we hit on all cylinders man we we made shirts really early on we made a we made two three song eps that we sold uh we tried to do everything we could to uh to get things going i remember there was there was one show <laughs> there was one show it was early on and uh we sold it out it was at the empty bottle it was like maybe 350 capacity room and we did we had our merch and stuff and at the end of the night uh the the owner came <coughs> bruce came up to us and was like all right, who, so who do we write the check to? And Damon's like, I'll take the check. And it was it was like 2,500 bucks. And I was like, wow. whoa, whoa, $2,500. So it was like, this is a big deal. It was so big. And and we uh, we took that money and we bought a van. Wow. We bought a conversion van. And uh, uh, we got a trailer for it. And then we were kind of good to go uh, national at that point. Right. So that's just kind of how it went. So you got this big payday. You got this check. You're, you're doing great <laughs> stuff locally. You know, twenty five for, for when you're young twenties with twenty five hundred dollars seems oh. that's, that's not that's infinite amount. Yeah, you're like so what? Far. Yeah, f you, dad. I told you, dad. <laughs> I told you I'd make it. We're gonna start a checking account in the band's name. So yeah, I mean, for me, I was like, wow, this is great. I'm like. You know, uh, it just, it, everything just had a very good positive sort of momentum and it was definitely connected to the work we were doing, but we were, we were kind of, uh, unresting, uh, very passionate about getting this thing off the ground. And at the time there was no internet. It was just, it was just like word of mouth and, and, uh, just, you know, hit the streets trying to, to get yourself out there and, and then, of course, having good songs and good shows was, right. was everything. So, so you built this momentum. You got this local done. You got a van. Maybe doing some more like regional shows. Maybe even like national shows. What is the thing that gets the attention? You know, what what is that thing? Was there one singular moment? Was there something that like a, a label hit you up or a manager? What what took you to that next like peripheral level, if you want to call it? Yeah. Um, well, I think it was it was, it was a combination. I think in terms of getting the label attention, we had we had finished the two the two three song EPs, and we had basically there was part of a full record that we hadn't released as a full record. Um, Damien had written three more songs that were definitely designed to be major label sort of fodder you know like we wanted to get the attention of the major labels and uh it was right around the time that we had done some national touring with they might be giants they might be giants had um a manager named jamie kitman who uh was close friends with some pretty high-powered entertainment lawyers in new york we sent the, you know, we sent this new three-song demo to him and to those guys, and they got it in the hands of of um, some of the major labels. There was a little bit of a, I wouldn't say it was a bidding war, but there was some back and forth with some of the majors, 
and we ended up settling with uh, Capitol Records. And that was in 2000. Mm-hmm. Everything was kind of going fast. Like within two years, we had a we we had um, gained some of the attention from the majors, and uh, and then we started uh, sitting down with the lawyers and figured out what a contract would look like for us. Right, because at that point you had nothing written up between you, the band members, nothing, just kind of just all playing. You have a yeah. band, that's about it. You know, yeah. at the end of the show, okay, here's what we got this night. Here we go, just kind of under the table yeah. stuff. Yeah, and we we signed we signed with Jamie, who was representing They Might Be Giants, and then we felt like like felt like a real operation. Like we were we were like had a real organization around us. We had a touring agent, we had a day to day manager, we had our head manager, we had a lawyer, and it was time to start uh, relationships with the major label, and and then we got signed, and that's when really sort of the craziest work started happening where we were, you know, we were flown out of Chicago and stayed in, in LA for six months to make our first record. And, um, I mean, that's when, that's when shit got crazy. We didn't start getting stressed. Yeah. That's when there's real stress. It was all fun up until that point. And then it got real serious because, you know, you started, you know, you know, the record contract was huge. I mean, even to the, Today's standards, it was a massive record contract. It was, you know, seven figures or wow. six figures at least. And uh, we had we had to make a music video. And so we had to talk to, to real uh, video directors and things like that and photo shoots. And this is like the beginning, like 2003, right? This is still like you guys are just kind of percolating, right? You just you got this stuff. And did, did it feel like before you got that record deal, did it feel like you could feel something coming? Like when these when these people were kind of bidding or do, was this kind of like a surreal moment at that point? You're like, whoa, this is like, we, we were just playing and now we're, now we're talking to who? We're going really, like you wake up in LA, like I'm really in LA? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it, it, it not only did it happen in a big way, it happened in a quick way. We were, we were basically sitting around, um, you know, Chicago as this stuff was happening with the lawyers. And I remember I was, I was working as a bartender and I got a phone call from my manager. And he's like, he's like, tomorrow's your last day. And uh, thank God my, my employer at the time was super cool and they were up on what we were doing. But I was like, I'm not coming in tomorrow. I'm leaving. I'm like, it was like, boom, all of a sudden it was time to, time to go to LA and make a big record with a big producer and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, now, yeah, was, I mean, it all happened within months. Was there any tension that, like, occurred in the band? Because once things are getting serious and contracts, did you guys ever have any infighting? We're like, oh, this is... Well, you know, um, it's... I mean, there was tension sort of built into the thing. I mean, obviously, uh, when you have, uh, you know, the lead singer is the, one of the main writers. Tim was a main writer. I didn't write anything. Um when we finally got to LA, it became pretty clear that the focus was on, you know, making sure the lead singer looked great, making sure the music sounded great. Um, a lot of, I mean, I was essentially replaced on, on our record, our first record, like, you know, five different session drummers came in to play on the record, which was like a huge, a huge uh, learning experience. It was an ego smashing thing but at the end of the day it was it was just the way big 
uh, Hollywood records got made, you know, you'd be lucky if you played on your own record back in those days. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was tough. I mean, it was tough. I mean, uh, in terms of, the, we, we're, we're smart enough to know that, that, you know, there's a lot more to um, the way bands got paid and the way um, things really ought to, to run I don't think young bands really know right away, like who owns publishing, who owns the rights to these songs. You know, if you're, if just because you play it on the song, it doesn't mean that you you're entitled to royalties. You know, yeah. so we made we made a lot of uh, smart band internal band uh, agreements that basically protected the non-writer and fairly uh, compensated the writer. But everyone, we made sure that everybody got. Uh, taken care of you know you hear terrible stories about big bands with uh drummers that are you know they're they don't get a uh they don't get a a, a slice to that publishing pie you know the writer's share and uh we sort of knew that going in and so we made we made uh awesome. we made good calls about that stuff you know are you guys on ascap or bmi we're bmi oh good good man yeah uh <laughs> Uh, so now, like, I, I, you don't really find success right away. Once the first record is done, you don't really find success right away, do you? Oh, not not in our case. I mean, we <laughs> we 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 had we had put out this first record, and and there was all you know these these radio promotion plans to make you know make sure that we got played all over the country and things like that. And the the very first video that we made uh, for our first single cost. I think four hundred thousand wow. dollars, and it, ne it never, it never even made it to MTV, and things like that happen. You know, you're just like, you, they, they, we, you do the best you can, and then there's a lot of uh, uh, art by committee, and things get adjusted and cleaned and fixed, and and then it goes, it goes to, out to the public, and you can just hope that things resonate. And our first record, it did it did okay regionally in in the Midwest and a couple of major cities, but it wasn't it wasn't by any means a huge success. Right, because you you were kind of growing up in like the golden age, if you want to call it a music, because there was still money, mountains of money to be made in yeah. CDs and everything else. So they could blow four hundred thousand dollars on one video. Oh, it didn't do well. We've got six other artists that are making us you know X amount of money. Totally. totally. Wow. Okay, so you're, so you're struggling for a while. Uh, I think it was like a couple of years. And was that kind of like a little bit disheartening for you? Cause you're like, here you are, you're in LA. Oh, now I'm Mr. Big Shot. I got, you know, <laughs> we got this label deal and then you're like, here we go. And everyone's just like, oh, well, sold like a thousand copies. I mean. Well, we did, we did okay. We did, we did, we had a pretty good first year of touring on that record. Um, when it came to following up the first single, that didn't work out great. I think we started to feel a little bit concerned about um, what was going on professionally, you know, after, you know, maybe a year and a half after the record came out. And, um, uh, but again, you know, like I can only speak for myself. I, I was just psyched to have a job. I was, I was psyched to be able to, to go all over the world. I like at that point we had been to England and Japan and those things were those, that was everything. I was like, I mean, I made a thousand dollars a month for ten years, and 
I made ends, I made my ends meet and, and it was really just about having this cool life experience and it was okay. When it came time to make the second record, um, uh, that was more of like, okay, a str- we had to make more strategic uh, minded decisions about who we were going to work with, where we were going to do it, make sure that, that um, it was all going to be internal in terms of the creativity and the production of the album. And so we went and made that second record in Malmo, Sweden, which was, you couldn't be any further away from LA. And uh, we worked with a producer that was like, he he didn't he didn't work like an LA producer and that was that suited us just fine. Yeah, why that's the question I've had since the beginning of just doing some research. Why the hell were you guys in Malmo? <laughs> what the hell? Well, that, Is it just it, one guy you met? He's like, Oh, I've come to Malmo. <laughs> well, it was a um it was a producer that had worked with a with a few bands that really liked. We loved the cardigans. Um Oh shoot! I'm forgetting his name. Um, oh shit! Um, it'll come to me. But he worked with the Cardigans. He worked with uh, Franz Ferdinand. He had a really good track record. You know, like legit hits under his belt. He had a tiny little studio in Malmo. We knew that we weren't going to have any A&R folk coming down us on us over there. And we went there and we, we knocked out our second record in, I think, 60 days, which was, was great. We did, we tracked everything um, without a click. We just played as a band in a room and, and we just went for a vibe and energy and, and it, was, it turned out great. Let's go, did you guys take the train over to Copenhagen? Yeah. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, go to Copenhagen. <laughs> Nothing to do with Malmo. You got to work over there. <laughs> You can have totally. Copenhagen. Okay, so you do this, you put out the second album, but the thing that kind of turns it around is uh, when I really think of OK Go, I think it's really like the first, I mean, MTV is obviously the product of mu- music videos that were taken off, but it's really like the first internet music visual band that mm-hmm. I can really think of. And you guys focus so much on visual. The music's great, it's top notch, but I think what people know from just like a one-off, oh yeah, this this is the visual band. So tell us yeah, about yeah this uh this video it's called here it goes again it you might know about it i'm gonna share it on this other screen but when when did this because this is the thing that really set the internet on fire and kind of made you guys yeah pop off this is dan over here on the side he, he's the one who's clapping so i'll just play some little bit but uh what what how do you go from recording in malmo doing this, having a record deal, having the first, you know, $400,000 video go, eh, and you're like, ah, well, you know what? How about $1,000 and four uh, treadmills? See how yeah. you like that. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it, it, the public knows that those, that was how the sort of ice was broken officially, you know, in the major way for us. But we had done over the years, I mean, Tim and Damien had always been doing um, re- creative sort of, art pieces all along and we had we had made a bunch of different you know like just sort of for ourselves kind of visual things that incorporated the music and we had done um um a a video for a song off of that record we had heard that uh michelle gondry wanted to make a music video for for um um 
for Kanye West actually, and we it was a it was a choreographed um, video treatment, and so we videotaped ourselves doing a dance in the backyard of Damien's house. This is before the treadmill video, mm. um, and it's really goofy and and charming, and we didn't do it for the world to see it. Uh, we did it as a like audition tape, mm. and it had gotten leaked onto the internet by friends. And we knew, you know, like it was getting shared a lot. It was getting shared more than, than anything we had done previously. More spins on, on you know, iMovie or whatever it was that uh, Go Movie or whatever people were watching YouTube like content back then. And so we knew that, you know, when we make the things that we really like. And we make them in earnest and with a genuine, a genuine and authentic spirit. It seems to always resonate better and resonate more clearly with the fans that are they're going to enjoy what we do. And uh, so, knowing that, Damien's sister, who's an ex ballroom dancer and a choreographer, had an idea for us to do uh, a choreographed routine on treadmills. And so we 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 went down to Orlando where she lived and and uh, bought these tr these uh, treadmills and just put our like nerd thinking caps on and tried to figure out something that was going to be entertaining, it was going to be cheap to make, and was going to really be the type of stuff that we like. And um, I remember making it and coming home. At that time, I moved to New York, and I. I came back came back home and I, I had the, the treadmill video on a VHS tape and I showed it to my girlfriend at the time and I'm like, what do you think of this? She's like, I don't know. I who knows? Who knows what like you guys make weird shit. Like this is about as weird as it gets. We'll just see what happens and and um it was right around the time YouTube was coming up. And so uh it had been seeded to to YouTube and and became like this first rock band viral video. And I think at the time MTV was still playing videos and, and they were, <clears throat> it was a story, you know, it was like we went, we got on USA today because we were making, you know, something we did that was so quirky and fun it was getting a lot of attention. And so MTV had us come to um, the VMAs that year and we performed it live, the treadmill video on the VMAs, which was to this day probably still the most horrifying experience I've ever had in my life. Really, really scary. The most nervous I've ever been. And, uh, and but we did it on that show and nobody bit it. And um, shortly after that, we were nominated for a Grammy and we won the Grammy for best video that year. So you I mean, this, these things all happened. It was like, make the video put it on youtube mtv boom grammy and then it was like you're the video guys you know you're the video band like within within a year and a half you know all this stuff had gone down even less time that's what i think it's really funny though uh just how the landscape has changed of content because i feel like what you guys didn't if it was released today would be like maybe a 15 second or 30 second tiktok video that would get a right. hundred thousand likes and that's it next thing you know right. 
but in this kind of early uh, petri dish of of internet culture, it's just like just took off, and that's why it's crazy. Because this is like I guess one of the, like the the thing that took you from like underground mid mid range to like this. And tell me about that that freaking whirlwind because your life changed within like you upload you hit someone hit upload. I don't know who who did, you, did one of you guys like locally just upload the video. Was it like Damien who's like yeah I'll put it up. I think it was. I don't think the label was very psyched about it. I think they were like. <laughs> I'm sure like, not. They're like, what is this? Like, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't going to work out. I mean, there's some quotes, I can't remember, it's a long time ago, but there was some people at the label that said funny things like, if this ever, if the, if this ever sees the light of day, we're sunk. Okay, goes over. Shit like that. You know, you're like, okay, well, here it goes. And, and it goes up and, and uh, yeah, in terms of whirlwind, I mean, it's funny, like being on tour is a whirlwind. I mean, just being like in a, in a, in a van or on a tour bus nine months of the year, you have no like real relationships with people at home anymore. You know, you just, you're just constantly on the go. So it was just like different, more interesting, more comfortable levels of doing the same shit you know you're just like okay instead of um staying in you know i think we were in we were in germany when uh the grammy thing like we had to fly home from germany to go to the grammy awards and then fly back it was just it's just a, a total mess and the whole our whole existence is a whirlwind and um but it's not like a whirlwind, like, oh, wow, all of a sudden we're riding in limos and, you know, our bank accounts get fat. You know, they're right. just. Well, yeah, I think we should explore more on this talk because when people think of success, they think, oh, you did it, man. You made it like your life is made. But you don't understand that the more um, successful you get, the more that you talk about this, this level of it's a level of sacrifice. Like, yes, it mm-hmm. depends what you want your life to be, because after that video happened, your life got a lot more complicated. Like you said, oh, yeah. you were on the road more, you didn't have home friends anymore. Things got even more complicated. You got to do more exciting things, but there's a price for that success. And it, it ultimately comes down to like what you want to do. Right. Right. <laughs> totally. What, <laughs> was there a point where after, um, cause you guys have made several videos where there ever like a point, maybe like halfway through the career, like, oh, man, if I just picked a band that just did regular things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I guess there, there was a little, little part of it. It was like kind of, I don't know. Again, this is a while ago and my, my opinions, I think changed, mm-hmm. uh, over time because it's, you know, there was the band that was playing in Chicago and all we wanted to do was tour. And then we were, all we were doing, then there was the band that all we did was tour and we wanted to have more conventional success. And I mean, at every play, at every stage, you kind of want things to be, to look a little different. Um, but for me personally, it was just like, as long as I got to, to do it, as long as like, you know, uh, as a crew, as a group of guys, as long as we were getting along, as long as we we're having fun, and making cool stuff and, and things are resonating. It was like kind of a perfect world. I'm, again, I can only speak for myself. I, right. I, I, I loved 
every stage that the band had gone through, um, trying to figure out what to do once you hit a new stage. You know, once we knew that people were thinking of us as the band that makes music videos, do you do you retreat from that idea and try to go back to the old model, or do you do you take that baton and run the the best you can in this new model? And that was sort of the decision we made. It was like, don't look back. <clears throat> you know, if we're gonna make another music video, let's let's make the type of stuff that this the the nature of this the 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 vibe of this let's let's roll with that and let's try to keep making great stuff that uh, makes us really happy and um, that's kind of like sort of no looking back and just keep making cool stuff I don't know. no 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 I see but was it also because when you have such success and so fast because it really was like the one of these first kind of viral things like whoa um, mm-hmm. did you feel like you had like a lot of this, before like you were you guys just got signed there was a pressure there but once you had this video with like you know 30 million views is there just like this huge pressure like well what i think sometimes like maybe like there's the the band the weekend when he released that project and he, like starboy it got crazy it's a billion views how do you that pressure to follow up is just immense and massive isn't it because like what well what do i do now we did the we did the treadmill is it was that that kind of pressure or would you kind of just go, go more like oh we're authentic let's just let's just keep being ourselves and putting things out that was focused on the music and the art. Yeah. Well, it was pretty much the latter. I mean, I don't think we, we would, in terms of scope, you know, it wasn't like, it was like, there was a hope that, that every video would be uh, better than the next conceptually. I, I, we just always wanted to make something more interesting to ourselves. I don't think we really got too far into the weeds about like, Oh, we need we need to rack our brains, and this this has got to be another. You know, we, we, this has got to be something better than the last. It was just like it ended up being a nice continuation of the spirit of where we we're coming from. Obviously, the budgets change, and the the scope of the projects change, and uh, but you know, uh, I don't re- I don't think we we're really that concerned about making sure that the YouTube numbers were always going up. They ended up doing that. Um, but I think it was really the, the, the hope was that, uh, whatever we, whatever we were doing was going to be more exciting, equally exciting or more exciting to us. And therefore as a result was still exciting to the public. So speaking about budgets, there was this other video, which I'll share a little bit too. Uh, is this one so mm-hmm. when you did this needing getting video crazy video by the way if no one's ever seen it definitely check it out how, how does someone you know when you're i'll get a little further in the video as you get past it but once you start really going uh you know who who is paying for, who is paying for this what label is like all right we got to get all these pianos out here <laughs> how many times did you guys rehearse this you know what give me more of the logistical uh uh, logistics or something like that. Well, I mean, that's, that was, uh, right around the time that we, we split, um, relations with the label and we started making, um, we were starting to make relationships with corporate sponsors that were totally not in, in the music industry. And we were making, okay, go music videos, 
that were part and parcel kind of like advertisements for for the for the sponsors and that's that that's a chevy uh paid for spot and um they used a portion of that in a super bowl commercial um and so um it was incredibly freeing to leave uh the 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 normal major label confines and work with now, was, that the company. Up, or was that just a split? I mean, uh, like, uh, between the label. Yeah. Was it, it was a pretty, break? pretty, pretty amicable. I mean, okay. there's a lot, there's a lot of details of what, you know, when you're the YouTube uh, band star and, and the label hadn't quite figured out a way to monetize all those views. Mm. I, I think it was, it was pretty easy math for them to say, Hey, well, maybe you guys should go do this on your own. You know, this isn't working out for us the way we want to. I mean, we were very visible, and and we had a lot of a lot of eyeballs on us. But I don't think the label was making the type of money that they they could be making from a band like us now. You know what I mean? So like we we, we split we split from that label, and the timeline of all this is is more in depth and detailed. But we left we left that label and we were able to uh, create uh, relationships with uh, partners that were excited about uh, letting us chase, you know, our artistic, you know, ambitions with them sort of as the sponsor of it. And so that's how the business model kept going after we left Capitol Records. That was 2010. You guys did your own label, your own music for yourself. And so that's the thing is, is a lot of people think uh, a label deal is is awesome. It's amazing. And it, it is freeing, especially when you first get started. The money is a freedom. But the label life is not a great life. I mean, there's some benefits. There's obviously, but it, it really stifles creativity and freedom a lot of the times, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I think it depends on who you're talking to. I mean, uh, for us, it was, you know, I think we – no, hindsight's twenty twenty. Like, I don't think we'd be where we're at today without the label. We're we're definitely grateful to the the support and help. I think there was moments when we felt like um, they could have they could have stuck by us a little bit more uh, carefully. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, like we, you know, I think we we shared uh, in the lift to get the band up and going in, into people's um, into people's lives and stuff. I mean, I don't, we've been nominated for two Grammys since and we've, we haven't won. And I think that's largely due to the fact that we don't have a label supporting us. Yeah, exactly. you know, we, we were nominated, which is fantastic. Uh, but without having that, that machine there to help you. Um, yeah. Like, Oh yeah. No, I mean, these guys are really great. You should definitely, this is, uh, category for your nomination that's how it really goes right. so, yeah you've lived in la california for a while now it's a lot of one-to-one connections yeah yeah so um i'm i'm grateful for our time with capital but when when we left and we were able to sort of drive our ship the way we wanted to in terms of our business model it ended up being really really a good move for us you know we were able to we were able to make exactly the type of art we wanted to do and, and the conversations about the way it was going to look or how it was going to come off wasn't between us and our A&R guy or the president of the label. 
it was us and the CEO of Chevy, you know, and and those pay, those in the ad agencies that work with those companies. Now, was it a band that was going out and getting these sponsorships now that you're on your own or did you hire someone? Was it like your manager or was it, who was putting these deals together? It was, it was pretty much internal uh, band stuff. And, you know, the manager was, was involved and, and the, you know, the deal points would have to go through a manager and uh, stuff like that. But um, I think there was a good period of time where um, the ad agencies that represented these, companies would come to us and they say, we have, uh, you know, Kraft cheese has a new macaroni and cheese noodle. And what do you guys think about making a video with that? And, you know, that's just a phony example, but that's kind of like people started approaching us. Um, and, and, you know, like the video, I don't know if you were going to get to it, but the, there's a video we did in zero gravity. That, yeah, of course that now for me, I'm a space enthusiast. That is my favorite video. Uh, there, there is the funniest thing. But uh, there's this funny moment on this one, uh, right here, where this, I mean, everyone just sees the video. But if you, this is like behind the scenes one. Yeah. And there's just like this. People don't understand. Like, first off, you look so uncomfortable. <laughs> so that is an uncomfortable man. But if you can hear this clip, it's like in between they're doing all this acrobatics and stuff. You hear there's like this like crazy. You guys should have left that in the video of the crazy Russian guy. Like you're doing these acrobatics and then heavy Russian speaking. Man, that looks like the most uncomfortable thing you have ever done. Oh yeah, that was that was really that was the tough one. And it's funny there's a ratio between how difficult and painful our videos are and how successful they are. It's like, if, if you're in a lot of pain and discomfort and uncertainty, there's a good chance the video is going to do well. <laughs> it's like a pretty decent ratio. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, like that was a company that came to us and they were like, we're airline and we're privately owned airline in Russia. We want to see if you guys have an idea. And we had this pretty, long living pet idea like we should do a band we should do a video in zero gravity and here was the opportunity to do it but and halfway through when you're hanging on that thing you're like all right maybe this wasn't a good idea was it <laughs> you i mean you guys i bet afterwards you guys like we bit off way more than we could chew on this one well you know i i think uh there's a there's strength in numbers and i I know it was, it was, I mean, I, I think at the time I, my son was maybe one years old and I had to fly to, to Russia and go on this plane and do two flights a day for 30 days. Like it was, it was incredibly uncomfortable and nerve wracking, but I know that, you know, with, with my bandmates, you know, we we do crazy shit. And I was like, I felt pretty darn secure uh, with the crew I was with and, and I knew that with uh, the level of creativity and, and brains that are involved with this band, I think we, I felt pretty comfortable we were going to come out with something awesome. And, uh, but yes, no doubt, it was uncomfortable. I mean, people were throwing up. Band members never threw up because we had 
extra special medicine. But, uh, you know, people were barfing, people were passing out. It's a physical, it's a super physically demanding thing to do. Um, the, the nice thing is that whenever I go on a, on a domestic flight, I, I, it's just easy breezy. Like people get real nervous about turbulence. I'm like, yeah, get over this. (laughs) That ain't nothing. Now, was there any like ever mishaps or on uh, you? Did, it's, you guys have done so many videos. You got this uh, Rude Gorb, uh, this you know, I forget the Goldberg, room. yeah, Goldberg machine and all. Were there any like any mishaps or mis accidents or any any like during these whole filming these choreographies? You're like, or was there ever an idea like, ah, we just can't do this one, honestly, we got to stop this production. This is just crazy. Uh, huh. Well, you know, there was the one of the one of the. There was never any like mishaps, but you know there'd be off off camera things where you'd be like, "Oh man, are, we've have we bit off more than we can chew." I mean, obviously the zero gravity one was was nerve wracking, and there was things that you couldn't, you know. I mean, we we didn't know none of us knew Russian, so like the uh, um, the uh, language barrier was tough, but. Um, when we were, we did a music video with dogs and we were, um, it was probably like a dozen dogs in our video. And, uh, you know, the dogs would, you know, dogs were good for X amount of hours of shooting in the day. But like if a dog slipped or whatever, like that, that was no dog got hurt in our video. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, it was definitely like, you know, we had the trainers of the dogs and, and you know, uh, you know, if a dog just decided he didn't want to shoot anymore, you're kind of screwed. You'd be like, well, you know, "Come back tomorrow, do it again." Um, I mean, there, there's just a lot of embedded stress in in all these videos, but like, n- no one ever really got hurt. There was one video where um, uh, we did as for a song called "Do What You Want." And there was, we had a lot of extras in the video who were doing sort of like extreme things on this in, in matching outfits. And, and one of the, one of the uh, stunt people was like professional, super pogo stick jumper guy. Oh. And he had like a pogo stick stick that was so strong. He could do a backflip. Well, I decided that like, why not? I'll give it a shot and I'll try to do this thing. And I ended up slip and I broke a rib. That was bad. <laughs> Wow. In the middle of shoot, that was bad. I had to go to the hospital, and that that was very painful. Like, oh. um, but I'd have to I'd have to talk to the other guys, to figure out what other crazy mishaps uh, happened. Not too many come to mind. Uh, and so you also like uh, in the beginning of this interview that you were kind of the most nervous you ever been was at the VMAs, you know, doing that thing. But it also says that you uh, you played Barack Obama's 50th birthday bash or something. Yeah, you, yeah. You were that. For me, I'd be like, that. how nervous can you be? I feel like that would be way more stressful. Like, why was the VMAs the most nervous show and not, you know, Barack Obama or being on the Colbert Report or any of these other places? Oh, well, I mean, I think it comes down to the main thing is that, you know, if you're playing, you're playing your instrument nine months of the year for 10 years to play your instrument in front of Barack Obama or, or anyone is kind of just another show you can sort of distance yourself from the awe of the you know this great president and this great event um 
that night was what was more exciting about that night was was seeing the secret service and what they had to do to sort of make sure the facility we were in was safe mm-hmm. that was more exciting than actually playing the drums it just was play, playing another gig the vma thing was horrifying because we had one chance to do the treadmill video that took you know eight days to get right and we were doing it on live tv in front of you know, Snoop Dogg was there and Justin Timberlake and Beyonce and like all these, not even peers, like these superstars that were going to get their first, you know, showing of what we were. And, and I mean, like, we're we're not dancers. So it was like (laughs) doing this thing on treadmills was totally horrifying. (laughs) It was extraordinarily horrifying. It was like, I never practiced this as as a life love kind of thing it was like this is just a crazy stunt and uh so yeah that was that was that was still more nerve-wracking than uh than the barack obama birthday party by far has there ever been any uh drawbacks with uh fame or any crazy fan stories or people you know people not leaving you alone you got any of those horror stories the the unseen parts of being a band and having to deal with this shit (laughs) Not really. I mean, i I've been, I've been relatively quiet. I, I don't, I, I don't do a lot of the interviews. Like this is maybe one of fifty interviews that I've done in the last ten years. I mean, I just don't get interviewed very often, so I don't, I don't get stopped at the airport or anything like that. Tim and Damien, because they're much more visible uh, characters in the band, um, they're they they you know, their privacy is sort of infringed upon a little bit, but I'm, I'm able to sort of go under the radar. Okay. Um, which I'm grateful for. I kind of knew it, that it would be better to be like more of like a uh, mysterious character. Right. You get to experience everything. You get yeah, yeah. benefits, but you don't have to deal with the, Oh man. That's right. That's right. So like, I wouldn't say that fame has ever uh, manifested in anything negative for me. Um, you know, I think some people think that that we make a lot more money than we do. Um, you know, and and you know, they think that that I live in some you know palatial place in the Hollywood Hills, and it's it's not the case. I mean, it's just the money is, just doesn't work like that. But uh, that's a that famous thing is it doesn't match the reality of it. Um, uh, of the finances and stuff. I mean, it's, it's just, it's very famous funky and I don't really care much about it. I, 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 I don't think of myself as famous. And if, if, if we are famous, you know, big deal. Like, right. I just want to make cool uh, stuff. You music know? and the authenticity and following your creativity. That's why you did it. You didn't start yeah. drumming when you were 10 years old because you're like, Oh, I want to be famous one day. I mean, right. some people do, but right. Right. Um, so tell me, take us to like current day, you know, what, what is the band doing to try to stay relevant? What are you guys pursuing? And, uh, how do you, how do you guys all talk? I mean, you're a band of 40 year old guys. How does, how does a band of 40 year old guys stay in touch and communicate? You guys got a group chat, you know, what are you, what are you guys doing? Well, right now in the COVID thing, it's like everybody else where we, uh, you know, we speak to each other, you know, just like any other group of creatives. I mean, we, we get on zoom calls and, and, um, 
we stay in touch. We're all dads now. I'm I'm sort of I'm the oldest dad. I have a I have an eight year old. The other guys have uh, kids under three, and so they're in dad mode pretty big time. I don't really see or speak to them that much. Um, we'll we have other things that we're doing where we're in contact, but it's not like we're playing shows right now. Obviously, yeah. Um, we put out a music video and a song a couple of months ago called All Together Now, which was done, um, you know, remotely from each other. And that, that went really well. That was really just a, a music video sort of trying to support the, the frontline workers and, you know, sort of keeping the creative juices rolling and the songwriting juices rolling. And, um, but wasn't like sponsored by anybody. It was just something that we did. Um, one of the things that happened that's really, really awesome and really, really close to our hearts is um, uh, when the Rube Goldberg video came out, uh, turned out a lot of educators around the world were using that video in their classrooms. And um, so I'd say about two and a half years ago, we, um, we started working with some educators um, to sort of repurpose our music videos for teachers to use in the classroom. And so we started um, uh, a new side project called OK Go Sandbox. And that is, um, we sort of like unpack our music videos to the parts that are that are useful for educators. And we talk about the science and math and, and things that happen in our videos that teachers can use in the classroom. And, and we sort of make new, like, video shorts talking about those things we have a educational packet that teachers can use and that's okgosandbox.org and you can check that out and that that seems to be a really good thing that sort of keeps us in the mind of younger folks and uh, and when the teachers use it um, you know part of it is showing your music videos and so there's a lot of kids under the age of 10 that know okay go that would probably never have heard of us right Minus so, like a, a meme of an image of a guy on a treadmill and then it's like when the boys go out and that's <laughs> that's, right. that's kind of all you you know they know um but i think i think you've had a, a amazing career that's basically is this culmination of you being a hustler being a go-getter taking the opportunities running with the opportunities and and pushing forward and, and relying on your um integrity and your creative juices but i wanted the last kind of thing i want to talk about is like how does this translate how, over your large success of, you know, music career and everything, what would you recommend for people come into this current music scene? Like right now, you know, they, they're the 14 year olds out there. They're the, the young 21 year olds starting their own band. How, how do they go forward? Cause everything's changed. You know, what would you recommend? Yeah. Man, you know, it's funny. I'm asked that question a lot. And because you know how you and I met, was through Sound Better, which is basically my my side hustle, which has become a main hustle of mixing and producing and playing drums on people's records and stuff. People ask me that question all the time. And I, I, you know, I can't say that I totally understand what the skeleton key is for current day sort of success. I mean, you've got the TikTok, which I don't even know anything about. Um, you have social media, which is totally didn't even come to the picture until way in the late, way, 
way later for us. Um, I think what seems to be the be the thing that matters the most is that there's two things. Number one, you got to keep constantly making things, keep constantly putting up content, um, and it doesn't. I I'd like for OK Go, it's the same thing. It's just like the music isn't any more important than the videos. And the videos aren't any more important than, than uh, uh, any other little thing we do. It's all of it has to be uh, constantly be thought about, constantly be generating new things. I think uh, um, to have your social media accounts uh, constantly being refreshed is really good. I, I haven't seen that not work for any of my clients. Um, I think overall, and this is kind of funny, I, I think the most important thing is that you it just reduces down to the fact that you have to love what you do if you're medium into it it's not gonna last you're gonna you're gonna run out of juice or you're gonna have the worst thing is that oh yeah this is this EP that I'm putting out these five songs are gonna put me on the map I'm like that's not the idea like there isn't one you have no opus there's no opus it's your continuation of making stuff is the opus. There's never going to be the one smash hit these days. I don't think we have control over that. I think the only thing we have control over is, is just keep making stuff and then ultimately just trying to have fun doing it. Like if you're having fun uh, and you love that process, it's going to be, you're going to be able to, it'll be sustainable. Um, and I think if you love it and people can sense that in the artwork. So I always tell folks is like, if you're sick in something, pause it, start something that you're excited about, pick that thing back up. If you really think it's exciting, if you really think it's, you're going to have fun doing the stuff you have fun with will cut through. If you're hating it or you're struggling, take a pause, try something that's going to be exciting to you. I think those those things, those two things are the most important thing that I would tell anybody is just have fun, but keep making stuff. Just be prolific. Brilliant. Well said. That's, we got it. We can't end on anything else. That's, that is as good as you're going to get. Wise word from Dan Kanapka. So thank you so much. Sure. Go on the show. The hundred people that watch this, man, they're going to be like, oh, now they have the secrets to the industry. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Super appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. We'll talk later. That's been another episode of The Zard Show. Thanks for sticking around and being a part of my life. I appreciate you. If you enjoyed the show, go ahead and like and subscribe or share the episode. If you'd like to support me further, I have a Patreon where you can donate at thezardshow.com. Remember to be kind, stay humble, and let your curiosity guide you to a better